Hello everyone, my name is Joanne Lockwood and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk That's S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk You'll be able to catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 48, with the title, Equality is not just a nice to have, it's a must. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to be joined by Niels Brabant. Niels describes himself as someone who helps managers to become better leaders by making them master the concept of sustainable leadership. When I asked Niels to describe his superpower, he said that, that it is leadership and sales. Well, hello, Niels. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Great to be here. Thank you very much for the invite. Yes, it's actually a pleasure. I think I guessed it on your show ooh, a few months ago, and it's been really good to have you back on this. So you can t- talk to my listeners as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. So tell me what. So, Niels, tell me. We, call, we titled this episode, Equality is Not Just a Nice-to-Have, It's a Must. What's your take on that? Well, many companies treat equality, diversity, inclusion as something where they say, we have to do it. But let's face it, often when you have requests from departments where they talk about, yeah, we are in for diversity, inclusion, and equality. And the next phrase often is, um, we want you to speak at our event, but we don't have much of a budget. And that tells you a lot about how serious, especially corporations, are about diversity and inclusion. You would never hear, oh, we don't have a budget for our sales team, or we don't have a budget for marketing, or we don't have a budget for the compliance department, because they know how important it is. And unfortunately, still many approaches in the corporate world are more driven by, we have to do that, and we have to tick a box here, and we have to tick a box there, so no one can attack us on a formal level. But when you... It's always a very easy question. When you look at the, the, the top three leadership levels and then you look at the amount of women and minorities there, I'm not even talking about the quality, just the quantity, which is the very first step, you often find diversity and inclusion in places where you say people have very little budget, very little influence, not much to say. And even when you try to get into the diversity areas, you often have the approach, okay, we have gay, white, cisgender men here. Of course, that's a good first step, but that is not what diversity is about. So a must-have, when you look into science and McKinsey, and let's face it, corporations listen to McKinsey and studies from McKinsey. Um, McKinsey conducted studies about the productivity, about the results you deliver as an organization, that 43% of the organizations who are diverse result, have better results than the ones who are non-diverse. And these are scientifically proven results. Of course, it is not the most noble motive to say, oh, we can make more money with diversity. Yes, yes, you can, but that shouldn't be the main motivation. However, we often see that, especially also in the UK, that careers are based on networks. Where did you grow up? What are your circumstances? Which families did you know? Which part of the city did did you grow up in? Um, Elementary school, high school, college, university, basically predetermine where you can end up either in free enterprise, politics or society. Social mobility is still very low. And that, of course, stands in the way of putting real diversity into the workplace. And that's something we have to address because when you are not diverse and you as a, a, and as a leader, you accept that you are actively harming your organization. And on, not, only have to, not only you have to be dealt with accordingly, as a leader, you have an accountability towards your organization. Actively harming it is the opposite of what you should do. Very true, very true. When you talk about this tick box exercise, I, I see a lot of organisations still relying on this unconscious bias e-learning. Um, and I, I kind of got some, some sympathy or empathy with this because when we talk about sales training, well, very often training a very small proportion of our workforce. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at EDI, inclusion and belonging training, we're, we're trying to if you like, cover all of our people, and we, as we can probably appreciate, that's a lot. That's very expensive in terms of time and money. I'm sure you find that the effectiveness of this type of, type of training doesn't work when it's tick box, you know, online e-learning. It needs some experiential. It needs some lived experience. It needs some 
building empathy and compassion for different people. And I think that's the, the challenge we have. Absolutely. How do you see organizations solving that? Yeah. Absolutely. Also, when you have an e-learning, so let's let's face it, in most cases, when people say we have an e-learning for diversity and inclusion, it is simply the cheapest offer they took. Some sort of standard e-learning training where people basically click through a test at the end. If they have listened or not, they can figure out the answers in attempt number eight or whatever, and then they, they tick the box and move on. And every single time, so as you said, we need empathy, we need interaction, we need the opportunity that, that people can ask honest questions in a safe environment where they probably are aware, I, I might ask a question which is inappropriate, but I want to know why it is inappropriate to do better in the future. We need these life circumstances for it. Also, when organizations tell me they don't have a budget for it, let's face it, diversity and inclusion, it's a human right. So when you say we don't have a budget for it, the statement you make is we don't have budget for human rights. Is that what you want to have on your website? Hey, focus on the people, open bracket, no budget for human rights, close bracket. No, you, you don't want to be connected to that statement. But actions speak louder than words, as we all know. And when you say diversity and inclusion, we go by the cheapest offer. Do not be surprised that things that go that, that things might go very bad. I mean, what we, we just saw in the recent past that a major financial consultancy firm, their chairman had to step down after he publicly said during a town hall meeting that, so first he said that people should stop whining about COVID-19. He gets his life sorted, so they should get their life sorted. Maybe as a chairman, you have different means. Could be due to your financial situation. But not only that, he said unconscious bias doesn't exist. And the supervisory board of that organization, which is an international consultancy company, that is heavily criticized in many ways at the moment. They did the right step and basically told that person, you can choose what your future will be, but we will take countermeasures when you don't decide the right way. So I think that's the very British way. Two days later, the chairman said his position became untenable, so he steps back, uh, steps down. Basically, they told him, either you step down or we fire you. That was what they basically said. So you have an international brand, which you build up for millions of pounds, and you harm that by such a statement so severely for years and years to come. And next moment you say, oh, sorry, diversity and inclusion training, we don't have, we don't have a budget for that. You get the results you, you seed it in the first place when you don't do significant investments in not only the human rights matter here, but diversity, inclusion, inequality, race, un unconscious bias, anything connected with that, your organization will be harmed. And the question is not if it will be harmed. The, the question will only be when will it be harmed. So it's your responsibility and accountability as a leader to make the right decision, which means invest to train people properly. Yeah, we had an incident with the, the Football Association in the UK. I don't know if you heard the story, but the, the chairman gave a speech and uh, he used, I'm going to be fair and say clumsy language. I doubt that there's any malicious intent. It was very clumsy, which showed a lack of understanding of contemporary language around racism or, yeah. or around black people and brown people. Yeah. And given at the time the, the Football Association, the FA in this country, are hyper-focused on racism in the game, it became, his position became untenable because knowing of the, of the issues that racism is in the football, he should have been well aware of his responsibility to learn and be aware of correct language. So I think we can forgive people for making mistakes because so, I never want to penalise someone for good intent, for trying, for, for, for engaging, as long as they can be accountable and understand their impact. But I think in this particular case, this person should have invested their time and effort in becoming competent culturally competent in, yeah. in the language he was using yeah. and i think that's where he became incompetent it became untenable but i don't I, I i often hear people scared to engage for fear of getting it wrong and what i really don't want to do i don't want people to be afraid of talking to me talking to a mm. blank person talking to a person with a disability because that doesn't help anyone so we've got to really by by we've got to create education that allows people to overcome this fear and, and be constrained by, by yeah. their own yeah. lack of knowledge. And that, that's the danger. How, how do organizations build on this to, to help people become culturally competent? Mm. When you see these incidents, so first it tells you 
And we all know football was very focused on. We we all remember when when we had the European Championship and uh, certain penalties didn't go the way they they should. We saw the, the the rampant racism that is still very omnipresent. It's ubiquitous in in certain sports, especially in football. And when senior leaders of these associations make these remarks, it simply means that everything they claim, we care about communication, overcoming racial barriers, we care about diversity and inclusion. And then the senior leader of that organization makes these remarks, you simply know it was all talk, no trousers. Because often people say, I am afraid to say something wrong. Well, here's the trick get the education. And then people say, I don't have the time for it. And that simply means I don't want to take the time for it, which means I do not care. So you have to address in your organization that you have to be properly prepared for being able to to communicate properly. Because when you are unable to communicate properly, someone will make a remark that will lead to a loss of business, it will lead to a PR disaster, and it will especially lead to talents not being interested in working with you. And it takes years and years to come to get away from that um, from that reputation uh, because people always remember these negative moments may more than the positive moments, especially when you look at football. Um, I'm, I have been a professional referee for, for quite a while. And when you look into football and the official positions are basically held by, by white, straight men. And often when they say these are the most qualified people, I still want to see the proof that being a good football player qualifies you to be in charge as a manager, director or executive to to, to manage millions, if not billions of pounds. In no organization, you would have any career close to that only because you did well on the operational level. So they get a bridge from the football pitch straight into the executive lounge and then they do moves like that. I I have very little empathy for these people because they're... Help is available, knowledge is available, science is available. The only thing you need to do is to do the investment, take the money and the time, and then you can learn it. It is, it is a skill that can be learned. When, when people simply deny to take the time, it's their fault, and then you have to face the consequences. I, I try to be nicer for years and years and years, and yes, people will take the time. When the time is right, no, we have a different project now. Yeah, in the future we will... These are all excuses and it goes on and on and on until some major catastrophe happens. I can only strongly recommend organizations, train your people, train them early, train them quickly so you can be sure that they do it properly. And this needs refreshing because society changes. It's, it, it, it changes quicker than ever. So language develops as well. And it only needs one bad phrase to harm your organization for one decade. And I think you have no interest in committing any of these aspects to your or doing any as, uh, of these aspects to, to harm your um, employer's brand, the reputation of your leaders, your whole organization, because the, 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 the consequence often is higher employee turnover, recruiting becomes way more expensive, the employer's brand has to be fixed. So when you say you don't have the budget, once the damage is there, you have to spend probably millions to repair the issue. So the way wiser, more wise investment is to do the training in the first place. 100% agree with that that uh, sentiment. I mean, you touched on something there, which is one of my bugbears, this bullshit of meritocracy, this perceived <laughs> who is the best person for the role. And yeah. we've seen it over, over generations that we tend to promote technicians into leadership roles. You're good at your job, therefore we'll make you senior. When we make you senior, we'll give you people responsibility so you're doing less technical work, more people. Yeah. Or expect them to do both, be technical and manage people. What we don't do is train professional leaders in our organizations and promote people on their leadership values rather than just their technical skills. And I think that's what you were touching on there, wasn't it? Absolutely. And we still see, so from in, in, in Germany, it was for a lot, very long time. And it's still in many organizations. It is common that the best engineer suddenly becomes the team lead or the department lead. Uh, But that person is probably interested in having more complex engineering issues to solve. That person is maybe unable or not even interested in dealing with other people's issues, problems, ideas, change projects, suddenly work on a on a meta level of the organization. It's the same with salespeople. Often when salespeople become sales managers, they fail in their role. Because when you are a sales manager, your job is not to sell to clients. Your job is to empower other people what you have done before. But often salespeople want to be 
sitting down with the clients, want to close the deal by themselves, want to get the praise, the award, the applause. But that's not your role. And you have to see when you promote people. So first, let's let's just put it straight. Meritocracy doesn't exist for a very simple reason. Meritocracy only exists if we if if we all start in the same place, in the same situation, then we have meritocracy. Do we all start in the same situation? Absolutely not. When I moved to the UK, I realized the power of something which is not even existing in Germany, the power of people judging you by the postcode in which you live. So if it's EC1 or W8 where I lived, or it's EC14, which is Canary Wharf, and people judge the quality of your business based on a, a number of letters. So that shows you how random the aspects are. People are often judged on. And when we see these aspects still happening, Please don't tell anyone it's all about meritocracy and you work your way up. We all know these stories and people often leave significant parts out. Of course, when I look at my own history, my personal history, I think my life would have been very different if my parents would not have been so keen that I go to university. In my family, it was not very common to go to university. My father studied law, which back in the days when he did it after being born in 1946, it was not common at all. Less than 10% went to university. But then he saw he does better with a university graduate job. So they decided our children have to go to university. They sometimes were a bit pushy. And let's face it, my marks, my A-levels were something in between a B- and a straight C. If my parents hadn't pushed me towards university, I probably had gone for vocational training. And my life would have taken a really different turn from there. So when you talk about meritocracy and you think... when. When people work hard, they will get exactly what they what they deserve. Basically, you're saying, and let's talk that on an international level, when you say people have to work hard and they get what they deserve, do you think that any developing country is just too lazy to work? What kind of arrogant statement is that? There is a certain position working yourself out of that position because you're so heavily judged by unconscious bias, confirmation bias, society standards, educational standards, university labels, especially in the UK, depending on which university you come from, even when it's a great lecture and you did the best thesis ever written, when it's the wrong university, they simply say, sorry, we prefer to hire someone from, and then they always name the same five universities in that country. So you really have to look for the skills and promote people for their skills. However, you really have to check if people are interested in being a leader. I remember when I talked to someone in the insurance industry who changed jobs from the Allianz, a really large large employer in Germany, to a quite small insurance company. And I asked him, why did you go with the great payment and the job and the great package they offer you? Why did you go from that corporation to this mid-sized owner-led business? And he said, and I quote, sorry for the words now, but I just quote him, because I didn't want to deal with the bullshit of the people just standing at my doorstep saying, oh, I have that issue and that issue. I simply wanted to sell insurances. And that was the reason why he changed to a different job. Being a leader simply means you must have a strong interest in leading people, developing people, retaining people. Your applause is when other people are successful. And that is something many people cannot deal with very well because they want to have the applause by themselves. And as a leader, that's not your job. Yeah, and I often think that leaders forget they have to lead themselves as a leader. You have to be a self-leader. So you should take pride in leading yourself in, in, the, in the way you want to lead others. And mm. even if you don't have staff responsibility, you can still influence because leadership is all about positive influence and motivation. And that may, you may not have a leadership role, but you may be influencing customers, you may be influencing the yeah. product design. So you're taking this personal responsibility to lead by example, mm. uh, bring people along. But we still, we still have this, this mantra in, in, in organizations that past performance is indicative of future success. And we hire for this experience we hire because we've done it before and i've i've had debates with senior leaders at board level around how they've got to have somebody as you said with the, with the, with the top five university with this qualification or they must have worked for this organization and that that propagates this bullshit of meritocracy where it means that anybody who who hasn't had that opportunity through being from a, an oppressed or marginalized community hasn't had that social network, hasn't had that 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 route to, route to market. They're never going to be able to enter those 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 uh, those rooms. 
So that's that's where societies, or that's where business and commerce is falling back, is relying on this past performance. And we know, you know, we know that an interview, a CV, are going to get you in the door. We know that maybe it will be indicative of your first two or three weeks, and then everybody is is and the same. You know, they've got to they've got to learn about the organisation, they've got to learn about the culture, they've got to learn about the differences of the job, and most people can pick up and tr- be trained in the technical side of their role. But the empathy, the compassion, the leadership is the bit we've got to look for as a core. And that is far, and it's the potential we should be seeking, the adaptability, the knowledge acquisition that this person can do, rather than just have they work for somebody else yeah. and then believe that they could do the same job for you, but better. Mm. That's, yes. that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. And often people think that leaders are still legitimized or receive their legitimization on a formal level. And that might have worked in the past. And I remember when I had my first job after uni, at the end of the 90s, unemployment was record high in Germany. Anyone was happy when you found a job. So when they asked me, suit and tie, I didn't ask why. I only said, which color, which brand, any preferences. So you were very obedient towards someone who has a title as a director or anything, which sounded very important. When you look at Generation X, Y, Z, or the Generation Alpha, which is going to enter uh, the first work work experience probably in, in five to ten, ten years' time, they don't care if, if you went to Oxford, Cambridge, you are a director or, or whatever else you, you, your title will be or is. Either you are able to do the job properly, then they will follow you. And if you're unable to do the job properly, then they won't follow you. And also when we look into different other areas, people simply see that having a degree from certain universities, and very important here, I really don't want to talk down on universities. University knowledge is very important. Science is what should lead society and should lead us. Very important. Everything must have a foundation in science. However, the university label doesn't make you a better person, especially not a better leader. I don't want to say look into UK politics, but that's really where you can see that having a university label definitely does not say that you have the best of interest for society in mind. And that applies, by the way, to absolutely any party in the UK. In Germany, you don't see that any MP is coming from predominantly the same university. We don't even have that predominant university in politics. While when you look at the UK, you can look at different studies and no matter, depending on how you want to weigh and measure it, between 70 to 80% of all your MPs either come from Oxford, Cambridge or graduated from there. So you're creating a political class which expects to be perceived as more skilled due to university label. And that is formality is the worst choice when it comes to creating leaders because People who are properly legitimized, people who are accepted as leaders, people who have opinion leadership in an organization are legitimized on a social level. When you do your job great, when you are able to be accepted amongst your peers, when people follow your advice, that is the point where we can see that you have leadership skills. Just stop sticking to these formal labels. They might give you an indication of a certain knowledge level in theory. They might give you an indication that people can approach problems in a certain way. And they might give you an indication if people are able to properly write down different aspects and problematic situations in a scientifically proper way. But they don't tell you if anyone in the meeting is going to follow you. They don't tell you if anyone is going to follow you in real world practice. And they they especially don't tell you if anything what you tell people to do, they will actually do. Because when people don't follow you, they will find a reason and a way not to do what you expect them to do. And that is what needs to change Leaders are legitimized on a social, not on a formal level. Of course, knowledge, science, very important. No question about that. But as soon as you want to lead people, the social aspect is the important one. I agree completely. And I think what you were touching on there, it comes back to a point you were making earlier about these networks that people build through their life, uh, the affinity groups, the tribes, the mm-hmm. um, the cliques that we have. Um and what we often find is that leaders will come from be, be bred and born out of these networks. And again, people from oppressed, marginalized, underrepresented communities don't even know the network exists, let alone how to how to knock on the door. And yeah. that's that's the big problem about trying to create equity in society, where there's this privileged view, almost blinkered view of we're in our network, we know what we're doing, we all we, we all speak the same lingo, we all we all big each other up, and anybody who's not in our network 
how can they have the same kind of knowledge and depth that we have? We, we've thought about this for years. I think that's, that's the kind of misnomer that we often have about people who are not part of the in-group. Yeah. We, we see them as other, we see them as less valuable, which is why sometimes I get really frustrated when people use the term diversity. We need to have diversity hiring. It almost makes people sound like other, makes people sound mm. like not, not the default choice. Yeah, hire some and, outsiders, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, or we, we tokenize, tokenistic. Exactly, uh, we exactly. Want, I, I remember really. vividly when I moved to the UK, it happened during the first six months, and a, a, of course, then you get in contact with the economy. You try to network your way through. That's how it works in the UK and Germany. When you have a quality offer, you can approach companies. And it's more based on what do you offer, not who you are. And in the UK, it's very different. So a business club at Pall Mall invited me over. And we were uh, chatting if I would give a speech there. And at the entrance, they said, it's, it's a male-only club. And I said, are you serious? So there are no female members. No, it's a male-only club. Thank you very much. That's it. I'm not going to speak for an all-male event because maybe I jumped into a time machine on the TFL, but I didn't think I did. So when you think that it is remotely acceptable that I talk about leadership to an all-male audience, problem number one is you, you exclude people based on their gender based on their biologic basically you ex exclude people based on your perception of a of, of of a social construct and biological organs which you think you can guess uh, but that's something they would not un, um, uh, understand at, at at that that point however we had a ruling in germany now that for example clubs who exclude people based on their gender so for example saying it's an all-male club They, by definition, cannot gain charitable status, and anyone who still does so loses charitable status at, at, at the end of the year. So suddenly they have to open up. And the reason why they are so afraid is because these closed networks, of course, no one talks about that openly. The main goal is someone of us will be in a privileged position, and they will hire us to get us into other positions. So we hire each other the ladder upwards to build our career, not based on skills, not based on qualification, but based on I know that person. And that is something which needs to come to an end because you don't have to tell people that anyone can make a career in your organization. When, when people see that the top leadership level are people from the same background, same university, same network, no one believes that you care about diversity. And this is part of the problem for making change. Because Absolutely. the people who make the change are locked into their belief system that the way that's working now is working. Why should we change? If what we've done before is working, why do we need to change? And that's, that's that, that, it's almost like, I don't know if you have this expression in, in Germany, but Turkey's voting for Christmas. What we're mm -hmm. asking people to do yeah. is people with privilege to, to cede their privilege and enable others to come forward. And, The government in this, you know, whether we love the government or hate the government, I'm not here to be political. The current sort of mantra is leveling up, whether it's leveling up in terms of the, the, the geographic location in the country, providing resources. Uh, we, yeah, for me, that's equity, good old fashioned equity, bringing people forward. So it's recognizing that it's not about, you know, often people, we see people with privilege, scared of losing something. Inclusion to them means giving away their rights. Yeah. Whereas, If we can get the leveling up message right, it's about bringing people forward. You know, if you've watched the privilege race, if you've watched all these things, it's about bringing people up to the start line at the same point to give everybody a fair chance. Yeah, but, but that's not how the meritocracy works, is it? The meritocracy is all around using my advantage and using that as a multiplier, not as just a purely additional. And that's the challenge we've got is we've got to get the privileged ruling class, the political class, people who are white, people who are straight, whoever they may be, to recognize that by bringing other people up to the start line, it doesn't mm. cause them less advantage. Yeah, but it's the same in, in pretty much any situation. I, I can tell you just two examples. So one, I came out um, when I was 19 years old as, as gay, and I, I was on the way. My career as a professional referee went very well, and as soon as I came out, I immediately realized there's a difference in behavior from the leaders that suddenly support me less because I think they saw a disadvantage with that 
towards the next higher level and their career. And just another example from the world of um, academia, my sister studied to become a teacher, which in Germany is a completely different job than it is in the UK, because in Germany, it's well paid, lifetime hiring, very good package, very good payment, unlike in the UK, where you have teachers struggling, making ends meet when they live in London, for example. Um, certain aspects, for example, when, when she studied um, a part of the Jewish culture, and suddenly they told her, well, according to the rules we have at this university, and these rules were made in 1974, you now have to learn ancient Greek and Hebrew to now be able to read the Torah in its original form, which when you look at what you do at schools, probably is not the level you teach later. And I think translations are available. But the only people who could decide to get rid of that would lose their job because they teach Hebrew, they teach ancient Greek. And when they decide to take it off the exam list, simply they would lose their job. So they, of course, will not vote for any change in the rules for studying these subjects. And it's the same in a corporate world. People know that they have an unfair advantage based on their networks. So when they say we get down to the true quality of who is the best for the job, they know many of their network are not the best pick. And suddenly you lose privileges, but people simply have to say, when, when people honestly say, it's going well so far, let's just look at what did we have. 1998, 1999, we, we had the birth of the IT bubble, which was completely pumped up by banks, mostly led by, by male strike. So 2008, once more, major crisis led by insane risk, mostly decided by the same group of people. So when people say it's going well so far, um, no, no, it's actually not going well. <laughs> it's not going well at all. Last time when we had a financial crisis, we were on the brink of the global collapse of the financial system. So saying that it's going well, it really is not. And when you look into studies, and again, as I referenced before, McKinsey shows when you are more diverse, then you simply bring better results to the table. And you can see that even investors who come from very non-diverse countries, investors from Saudi Arabia or Russia, they demand very strict diversity quota because suddenly when they put their money into a, a, a company, they know diversity gives me a better return. So I'm up for diversity in that organization, just not in my country because I want to keep the unfair advantage I have there. So we see that people are aware of what is wrong, but they deliberately ignore it as soon as it comes to their own position. And that is something why I don't let people off the hook when they say, oh, it was running well so far. Was it really? When they have a good track record and, and the organization was doing perfectly well, then we can talk about that. But in most cases, it is not going well. The issues were there. The issues were addressed. And often the issues were solved by paying people money to leave. So they just shut up and move on. And often when you have that one person that goes to public with a certain issue, suddenly you have hundreds of people joining and say, well, I have the exact same issue with that organization. And then anyone says, oh, how could this happen? Well, it happened because you didn't care about the issue in the first place. So the whole argument of it's going well so far, first, it isn't. Second, no employee would get away with saying, I don't want change because it's going well. Any leader would say, we have to change, we have competition, we have to adapt to the market. So why suddenly on senior leadership level, they can say it's going well, let's not change. Complete nonsense. And third, when you do not change, you deliberately ignore science. And if it's only that, maybe only that one reason, if you deliberately ignore science, then you really have to rethink your approach to leadership. We have enough people who deliberately ignore science, and I'm not going to be political here or talk about the vaccination process we are now being in, but deliberately ignoring science is never a good choice, and it's especially not a smart choice. No, it's not. But the facts don't change people, do they? We, we know that McKinsey have produced this report. There's been yep. all of the top four global accountancy firms have come up with similar studies. We can quote the benefits of diversity, the benefits of inclusive networks, the benefit of inclusive leadership, the benefits of training and culture and values. We know this. So why doesn't it permeate through all levels of organization? It may well be a desire at the board level. They, they have this rose-tinted view of the organization about – you know, their view is it's all going wonderful. We want to be inclusive. We want to treat our people right. But somehow that that dilutes through the organization. And then the reality is when you get to the lower tiers of management, 
that message is almost lost and mm. they're, they're feral. They're, they're just not thinking about it. So how do, how do we match the, the aspirations, if you like, of leaders to the reality of the employee experience? So first, we need to tell people that when they don't, when they are unable or unwilling to change on their free will, we have to set very strict quotas. Uh, it's it's always the last option, and I'm not a friend of quotas because you immediately create the next problem that people say, oh, that person is only in that position due to a certain quota which was set by HR or the board or the supervisory board, whoever. But I can give you an, a perfect example. When we addressed for the first time in Germany that not enough women are on boards, then the economy said, free enterprise said, we are going to change. The process is running already. 20 years later, Angela Merkel said, and she said that word by word, you had 20 years time and the share of women on boards is still way below 10%. So now we're going to put in a quota because after not changing anything for 20 years, you now have to face the consequences that you, and then of course she chose different words, but what she basically said was, you were deliberately lying to us for 20 years, and here you are with the quota which you now have to meet. The quota is always the last resort you have to go for when no change is possible in any other way. However, unfortunately, many people only listen to you when you, for example, say diversity has bar, 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 and more profit. And then they say, excuse me, what was the last aspect again? Was it more profit? Yes. And then they suddenly start to listen to you when they realize there is more profit in there. However, some people still see that diversity might harm their own position, their personal income, their personal situation, or their personal team, their personal network, and they're going to protect it at any, at, at any price. And these people simply have to be replaced. When you see people that deliberately act against obvious common sense, the scientific evidence we have, and of course, when you, 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 you can always um, con convince people more when you use emotions the emotional aspect needs to be addressed as well. People are afraid of change and we need to address that. That's why we have professional training for people to create a safe space to tell them how they can act in the future. So we can address these emotions proactively. We can't address them with an e-learning course that people click through for 45 minutes. That's simply not how it works. However, the main issue remains that when people ignore facts, they often do it to protect their own networks and to stay in their own bubble of advantage, unfair advantage, at least until they either retire, um, be, be, become a pensioner or go somewhere completely different and do something completely different in another industry. We have to be very aware that some people simply deny facts because they know when we look into facts, I shouldn't be in the position I am. So I'm simply putting the problem somewhere else to create a bit of smoke and mirrors around the real issue and say, oh, we should look at this, we should look at that. Uh, th there's a legal issue here. We have to talk with compliance about that and the HR needs to set up a project here. So you're just gaining time by putting up another smoke, mirror, smoke, mirror, smoke, mirror. When you see people acting the wrong way deliberately, and that's what this financial consultancy firm did right, when you have a senior leader saying unconscious bias doesn't exist, then we unfortunately have to say you have to be removed for the best, uh, for the organization, saying something like that disqualifies you as a leader, at least in the position you are now. So at this point, that was the right decision to do. Many people who now still think, well, but I have built up my network and I put so much effort in there. But I can understand it might have been a lot of effort and you put in time and probably money as well. But putting in time and money to gain an unfair advantage is neither noble nor helpful for an organization. So that cannot be the reason for not making a change that you say, I prefer to keep my personal unfair advantage because I invested so much in it. You probably should rather question yourself if that was the right move to do. And if it's not wise to now change to the right side and say, we need to look for qualified people and the best fit for the job, not for some sort of network clique-ish decision. Because people realize when these decisions are made, People are demotivated and not motivated to, to walk the extra mile, as many organizations say. Why should anyone do that when they know I'm not part of the network, so I'm not, I, I'm not going to, to be picked for any promotion anyway? And that is a major issue. In addition, we have a cultural aspect as well. One of the reasons why people often defend people in very high, very privileged, even very wealthy positions is often people think, when they are obsessed with optimism, people think I could be the next one who is in that position. I want to have the comfortable position they have as well. 
it reminds me of people who go on the street protesting against the billionaires tax and these people make $20,000 a year. Billionaires for sure are very happy when that happens. And of course, when it comes to taxation, a very complex issue. And as an entrepreneur, I am in for less regulation and lower taxation, but everything up to a reasonable amount. Simply believing in the next anyone can make it racks to ridges, motivational, inspirational meme. There's a very nice quote. It's never your successful friend posting the motivational quote on social media. And there's a reason for that. Being obsessed with optimism does not change reality. No, and we see a lot of dream salespeople, don't we, yeah. on that on social yeah. media, get rich quick, six figure coaching business, yeah, yeah. zero investment. Yeah, seven steps to this, seven the, steps to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the people who are making the money are not the people on the program, they're the people who create the programs and selling the dream, the yeah. um this sort of uh, snake oil salespeople, isn't yeah. it? So, Basically often when you have of course not everyone, but many so called inspirational or motivational speakers, they are selling hope. Because and that's often used also by different industries. You, we all know the story. When you look at music labels, you have someone who grew up in a very poor part of London and they were in jail. And then they had this amazing music career. And they all see when you work hard with your music career, then you can become a billionaire by just making good music. What they miss is that a board of 20 white men sat there and said, you, we picked you to jump out of the mud and tell anyone that's what's considered hard work. No, it was a random decision. They, they could have picked probably 10 other artists who had the same career. But people think that this hard work pays off. Of course, when you invest more money into education, more time, more effort into education and your job, you get better results. But everything, when you look at your starting point, it takes time. And it's not very realistic to say that when you start in a very bad environment that you are going to be the next prime minister. There, there was a, a great documentary about, um, and, and it was called, on the BBC, it was called, um, Will We Ever Have a Black Prime Minister? And I think the conclusion was, it is more likely that a German gets naturalized and becomes prime minister in the UK than a black person would ever become prime minister. So welcome to reality. We need Again, we need to look into science and facts. Motivation and inspiration is not what drives a business, a career or an income or anything in your life forward. It just feels good. It keeps you, it keeps you going for another day, but it is nothing that substantially helps either you, your career, your family or anything in your life. I don't want to yeah. be too negative right. here. Maybe I'm just a German in the round here, but... When I moved to the UK and looked at it from a German point of view, I very quickly saw, and these random aspects played in my favor as well. I talked to UK businesses, of course, due to my charming accent, they realized German, and immediately they assume, oh, great quality of work, great work ethic, always on time, delivering projects, and always being the hardest working in the hardest working person in the office, first showing up, last to leave. These are just stereotypes about Germans. Of course, not every German is like that. Maybe I am a bit like that. That can be true. But suddenly I have an advantage. I immigrate to a country and based on the completely random category of my passport, I have an advantage towards other people who probably immigrate as well. But because they are French, they would say, oh, no, not you. Because French are difficult, you know. So, And that is completely random but it's still happening a lot. Yeah, and I mean, as much as I um, procrastinate and talk about and and uh, advocate for equality, diversity, removal of bias or questioning bias, I know one of your 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 superpowers is leadership and sales. Sales is about positive bias it's about creating affinity it's about creating a brand it's about selling an opportunity a dream a hope whatever that may be so i often have this sort of like paradox of, of, of emotions when i think well actually whilst i'm trying to be advocate about removing bias i actually want positive bias towards me i want people to say actually joe's fantastic joe's good this i want this bow wave of reputation yeah which is yeah affinity bias it's a halo effect i want i want to use the biases in a positive way and i often think when when you're applying for, applying for a role or a job with a cv you want that cv to sell you 
And then we're, what we're doing now is we're, we're, we're blind or we're, we're anonymizing CVs. We're removing all these details. So people are just becoming almost like cold facts. And, and that almost stifles the people's ability to sell, which is a, a very human nature when you're trying to go for roles. But then yeah. we often end up hiring the best salesperson, not the best manager or leader or technician, if we're not yeah. careful. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so first, sales is a skill which anyone needs to master for a very simple reason. No matter what your idea is, if you have an idea or a concept or you want to have a certain project or you want to be hired somewhere, you are doing sales all the time. The worst phrase is when someone says, oh, I don't have to do sales. I work in I don't know, accounting or compliance or HR. You always do sales. When you're unable to sell, you won't be able to get your ideas across. And let's say we do anonymous CVs. When you look at my CV, and I studied at the University of Hamburg, a university which is ranked on I don't know, 100 whatever rank, so not a prestigious university at all. But when you print my LinkedIn CV and you take my name off so no one knows who I, no one knows who I am, the education starts with three classes Harvard University, two classes MIT. And that alone will so heavily influence people in my favor because they see, oh, Harvard, that must be a good person. MIT, oh, he, he, he must be skilled. Well, it, probably I have the knowledge about that. It doesn't tell you anything about my leadership skills. But for sure, you will invite me to the next round because otherwise you might face criticism. How could you not invite the Harvard person? So, And when I say my superpower is leadership and sales, in the beginning, it was only leadership. I learned sales. I was never a naturally born salesperson. I was actually very opposed to doing sales until I realized when you can't sell your ideas or what you want to get in place in an organization, just having the facts is not enough. Anyone who wants to get something across which actually gets done afterwards needs to master sales. Whatever position you have in life, no matter if you work for the public hand, free enterprise, science, politics, for a council, no matter where you are, you must be able, if, if you want to have a career and you want to have your ideas getting done, then you must be able to do sales. I know this, this, this now might sound horrible to many people, but doing sales is not being chatty and, and, and offering nonsense uh, products to people who don't want them and you just talk long enough until they finally give you their money and you just ran off with it and they are sitting there with a really bad product. That's not sales, that's scamming. And these are the people who sell you the online class, how to get rich in four weeks. And you have to admit and see that no one, when they disagree with you, no one will simply agree with you based on facts alone, because they have their perception of the world. You have your perception. But, and by the way, I, I don't want ever, because some people say you have your truth and they have their truth. That's a horrible statement. When it comes to the truth, we have a factually proven truth and truth is not up for negotiation. We have different points of view. That's what we have. When you want to convince someone who is strongly opposed to your point of view, you must be very good with sales. You must have sales skills because simply repeating your arguments will not work. And sales skills include, of course, the factual side, the emotional side, how to do a proper sales pitch, how to conclude, how to get commitment from someone, how to build rapport. All these need to be learned. I had zero sales skills when I left university. I learned sales from the scratch. And I can only recommend to anyone to do the same. Again, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you here. I... I... I would never consider myself a salesperson, but naturally I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a business person. I run a business. I, yeah. I sell. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to think, I like to think people buy rather than I sell, but that's creating a brand alignment. It's, it's identifying need and for being able to fulfill a need. And that's all part of the sales process, isn't it? It's identifying, qualifying, and then delivering a, a product or a brand or a service. And I, I think we, we often confuse sales with the, car salesman the estate mm. agent, the, the fly-by-night and yeah. the mistrust that that has whereas I, I mean you've just said it, I think yourself there the best salespeople don't sell overtly it's around building that relationship and identifying what the, what the person in front of you actually needs and then absolutely. helping supply that absolutely and, and knowing when you can't deliver actually being honest enough to say actually that's not us um you might want to try them instead and that that's the authentic side of sales and I think and, and it doesn't just stop at, at the deal. It's about that relationship. It's building that long-term relationship with people and bringing this back to an inclusion sort of concept. It's about making sure that you're you're creating accessible solutions for 
for all people, not just people like you. And that's that's the other thing when we talk about inclusive design, making sure the products or the service is representative of, of, of all people in society, or at least the market you want to select. Yeah. And when it comes to sales, also, when you now try to change something in a positive way when it comes to diversity and inclusion, often you will have people facing the fear that they think I will get replaced and I won't get a chance anymore as a, and, and, and you might have heard that line. You have no chance today when you're a straight white man. So first nonsense. So second, when people normally they add the phrase, anyone is offended about anything today. No, no, we just don't allow racism and any, any racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobic state. No, no, we call you out. That's what change. And that's what you don't like. But diversity is never about replacing a certain group just for replacing them. We simply have to see that some people are in places where they shouldn't belong, where they simply should not be, where they got due to an unfair advantage. And of course, yes, these people will not be seen again in these positions, which is good for any organization. Because when you see that even senior leaders of large corporations, where you can assume they were properly trained, when they make such unacceptable statements as we heard from this consultancy firm in finance or from, from Premier League, you, you simply have to admit this comes from a certain, not only mindset, but from a certain attitude towards this is, this is how life, in my opinion, is. So black people are like that. White people are like this. And when you still have that attitude after all the training you received, probably you, you, your time might be over. But there is no reason to fear when you are on the good side of diversity and inclusion, no matter who you are, there is no disadvantage for you. The only thing we take away is the unfair advantage of people who got the unfair advantage only based on the completely random fact, which family, which country, which place were you born into? Because that has nothing to do with skills. That is just a completely random fact that has no value added to society to, or to organizations whatsoever. Amen. I yeah, completely. And <laughs> I, I really, it was interesting. You you picked up on you know straight white men feel they're under attack. I'd actually written that on my pad. One of the things I was going to talk to you about. I was at a, a reunion mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. I was in the Royal Air Force in the UK back in early eighties, eight nineteen eighty one, and we had a fortieth reunion last week or last mm -hmm. month. And so I was I met with a, a cross section society from forty years ago who were predominant. Well, they were all white men yeah or mainly white mainly white but all men and i was talking to one uh, of my previous uh, colleagues rf colleagues and he, he knew what i did and and there was a lot of comments around oh politically correct woke or joanne's here we've got to kind of watch our language and then he then he said i haven't had it easy you know I'm a white man. I'm under attack. My father worked in a coal mine. I came from a working class background. We didn't have money. We, I, I had to fight and work for everything I had. And th this, this was a genuine, ordinary white man who handled these beliefs. And it wasn't that I wanted to attack him or tell him he was wrong. And yes, he hadn't had it easy. Yes, he came from a working class background. But he wasn't receptive to the fact that it wasn't the color of his skin that held him back. It wasn't the fact he had a disability that held him back. It wasn't the fact he was gay or, mm. or queer that held him back. It was the fact that he, his, he came from a working class background yeah. and he has obviously exceeded that programming because he, he he's relatively wealthy, has a sustainable business mm. that, that he may not have had, had he been black, had he been disabled, had he been gay. Absolutely. So to try to try to persuade, people that privilege is not about what you, the, the struggles you've had it's about the struggles you haven't had and that's that's the kind of nuances and i was at another event again with a group of men previous you know, friends from my, my previous life and one person was pontificating around how there seems to be this vendetta against statues pulling down statues of great leaders from the past and i just said oh, come on don't you think in a multicultural multiracial society we should have representation of all communities. He said, well, I can't think of one famous black person I want on a statue. It's yeah, like, look into history okay, and then you that. know why. Because you enslaved them yeah. and colonialized yeah. the countries and probably you don't yeah. make them heroes. That could be one answer to yeah. Sorry for interrupting you. Yeah. But, but again, there was little reception on why can't we celebrate 
black art, black culture. It doesn't need to be a statue of a person. I think maybe we've moved on as a society. We don't need to we don't need to glorify people on statues so much anymore, but glorify the cultures of the civilizations. And, and mm-hmm. how, how do you think it feels if you're a black or a brown person walking down the street and all you see are colonial ancestors or or colonial messages or, yeah. or celebration of whiteness? Again, that, and there's that, a place for these a... statues. It's called museum. That's where you put these statues yes, in a museum. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. With with the history, with the why. Exactly. What happened at that time? Yeah. Telling that white history. Yeah. Yeah. There's one very important point here, and that is something which even many people where I come from um, get it wrong. People often say, "So let's look into German history. The, the history of Germany is um, the, the history of the worst uh, crime in the in, in the history of humankind." And that every German, and that is a statement now where people will start to disagree, every German is guilty of it, including me. I could easily say, because I'm in the position for that, my family is a Holocaust surviving one. My grandfather was in resistance, organized the resistance in concentration camp Buchenwald, survived years in concentration camp, helped the Allies to organize everything when they arrived. They named the street after him. So I could easily say, I was not one of the Nazis. We were a good family. However... National identity is nothing where you can cherry pick what you like and what you do not like. I arrive in any random country on this planet, no matter if it's in Spain, in France, in the UK, in the US, in Canada, in Bolivia, in Brazil, in Australia. I say, hello, I am German. And anyone immediately believes I am qualified, intelligent, hardworking, on time, brilliant project manager. And most people ask me if I'm an engineer. And no, I am not, because we are not all engineers. (laughs) However, when I have all these positive aspects, I cannot say I ignore the history that comes with my national identity and say, that's nothing of me, none of my business. Please rub that off me. I only take the positive aspects. It is a strength when you are able to learn from history, admit errors, so you can see when certain tendencies happen again, like a far right-wing party in Germany, like the, the, the AFD sitting in the parliament. You can act early on these things happening Call people out who join these parties. Call people out on racism, on wrong behavior, on unacceptable behavior. Unfortunately, in many countries, it is not only not well taught in schools, it is also not socially accepted when you say, we have a past that is not as great as we pretend it is. When we look into the history of the UK, let's face it, certain point in time, 50% of the world was under the empire. And I don't think they signed up by a, by a voluntary subscription. So, and we have to address what impact does this have on society? What impact does a royal family have? What impact will it have when we have a transition of power within the royal family, which will probably happen within the next 10 years or so? But when this is not addressed and you only say, I am proud to be X, Y, Z. Let's face it. We never worked for becoming a certain nationality. This is not meritocracy. That I, I could have been born in a completely different country. Let's face it. If I had been born as a black gay man in Senegal, my career wouldn't have been anywhere near, not, probably nowhere where it is right now. And you have to address that privilege. But often people don't like to talk about that. And then they say, white men are under attack and we are, te- we, we are tearing statues down. No, no. We are addressing inequality. We are addressing wrong, wrong representation of history. And we are addressing that this needs to change. The sooner, the better. We tried it the nice way for decades and decades and decades. And there is always the tipping point where people say it is enough. We tried it the nice way and it didn't work. So now we simply take down the statues and simply tell you this line will not be crossed again. And I fully support these actions because the nice way didn't work. They ignored every issue for decades. And now you simply have to face the consequences of ignoring the issues in the first place. And the same applies to organizations. Often when you have issues about diversity, equality, or when you have issues about compliance, or you have issues about your investments, 2008, when we deconstruct what happened, it was not that out of the blue, from one day to the other, magically, all these credits became faulty. No, for years and years before, people looked away and said, just keep it going, it works well. And when you do that, you have to expect a certain escalation, and isn't it the better way to address it early? And I think diversity and inclusion training 
is the way how to address early, how to become a better organization, how to become a more sustainable organization, and how to pick the best leaders you have available to make your organization a better and more sustainable one, including excellent leadership. Fantastic. I think that's an excellent point to leave our audience on today. That's an excellent summary. And Niels, it's been an absolute wonderful conversation. I can't believe the hour has passed so quickly. Um, I loved your candor. I loved your perspectives. Um, So many of them are making me smirk because I had so much agreement. I was making notes. So thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure our listeners will want to get in contact with you. How How do people get in contact? What's the best way? Um, yeah, easiest way, write me an email, nb at nb-networks.com. So nb at nb-networks.com, straight to my email. That's an email address which only I read, so it goes straight to my inbox. Of course, you find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, pretty much on any social media platform, no matter if it's Facebook, LinkedIn, the German version of LinkedIn is Xing, or if it's Instagram, you find me anywhere and you can can t- contact me on any of these platforms easiest way is um of course i have my i have my own podcast leadership podcast by Andrew Brabant. feel free to listen to that as well easiest way to get in touch with me of course is email or linkedin that's the channels i always recommend to get in touch with me the quickest way so i'll make sure that those details are in the show notes so that people can click on those and follow them through again huge thank you and huge thank you to the listeners for, for tuning in for listening to the end Please do subscribe if you're not already to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Please tell your friends. Please tell your colleagues. Please do share this episode. I have a number of exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be also inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest, if you've got a story, if you've got a message, then please let me know. I'd welcome your input. And of course, I'd also welcome any feedback and suggestions you have to joe.lockwood at cjmchappen.co.uk. How can I improve? What more would you like to hear about? So my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.